Welcome to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. Marketing is our passion, and as a chapter, we hope to inspire dialogue, fuel creativity, and create a community for marketers everywhere. Let the inspiration and dialogue begin. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe to our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Hello, we're your Marketers in Motion podcast hosts. I'm Josh Janowiak. And I'm Megan Pear. Today's topic, visual marketing and photography. We're going to discuss the impact your company's own images make on all of your marketing materials. We'll also reveal insider tidbits about how all images on the web are found by search engines, how search can tell when stock photos are being used, why that impacts your reach, and how original photography can lead to a significant increase in conversions. First, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors, our new podcast sponsor, River City Studios, where we are recording today our second podcast. It's awesome. Uh, they can help you record and produce an awesome podcast just like ours. They offer recording, mixing, and mastering for podcasts, TV, film, radio, and musicians. Check them out online at rivercitystudios.com. A big thanks to our annual sponsors that support our programming year-round. Gold sponsors, MIBiz and VizCom Media. Silver sponsors, PageWorks, Bird and Bird Studio. Our very own Adam with us today. Yes, Red 66 Marketing. And our brown sponsors, OFA and Grand Valley State University Conference and Event Thank you, sponsors. We can't do this without you. Support the sponsors that support this podcast because they make it all possible. Absolutely. Well, we're excited today. We have one of our own AMAers. Uh, he's been with us uh, as a member and a sponsor for I mean, several years now, a sponsor for a little over eight years now. So we're excited to uh, to have Adam Bird with us and just give you a little background on him. Um, Adam Bird of Bird and Bird Studio is part of a husband and wife team that works with a variety of clients nationally. Um, their studio is located here, though, in the heart of downtown, downtown Grand Rapids, um, and they call this their home. Uh, his career started early freelancing for local newspapers while in high school and throughout college. And this eventually involved in, evolved into him working as a freelance photojournalist for regional and national newspapers and newswire agencies. But with declining trends in the news print business and with the shift of entertainment and news online, Adam started a studio and became... Adam Bird, photographer. Um, again, want to recognize that he's also been with us in AMA and been a sponsor. His team is the one that are responsible for the awesome photos at all of our luncheons. So they, they do a great job. You can check them out at birdbirdstudio.com. So welcome, Adam. Welcome Thank to you. the Marketers Thank in Motion you. podcast. So before we get started here, why don't you give us a little background? Tell us how you kind of, I gave your bio, but tell us how, in your words, how you came to be a photographer. Theft. Oh, the business is theft. Theft. That's how I became a photographer. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's hear this story. I, yeah. I, my dad, when he was in college in the 70s, had an SLR, a single lens reflex. So it's a camera where the lens and the body are separate. And as a kid, like when I was 12, that was the coolest thing ever. And when, when I would look through it, depending on the lens I was using, I would see the world differently. A wider angle lens, I would see a wider view of the world. You know, it, it, it would literally constrain my vision. And by constraining my vision, it would control my attention. Mm -hmm. um, and in a lot of ways, that's really what the, 
the power of photography is. And I discovered that at a very early age because I would, I stole it from my dad out of his closet and I played with it for like months and he had no idea because he didn't <laughs> use it very often because he had to push film through it in the process and that was expensive and stuff. So I played with it for months and then he wanted to use it for, I don't know what, went into his closet, noticed that the bag was missing oh. and then started snooping around a little bit and found it hidden in my room. And uh, credit to my father, his reaction was not to punish me, although he, he did do that. Um, <laughs> it was to let me keep the camera and to buy me a roll of film. Nice. nice. Because yeah. all of the playing I had been doing was changing the lenses and cocking the shutter and looking through it and focusing and, you know, using it as a machine and, um, and enjoying, like, you know, going in the backyard and, like, using a telephoto lens to focus on a leaf. Your entire attention is focused on the leaf. And when you're looking through the camera, you're only seeing what's really in, in, in front of the camera like that. And, you know, especially as a kid, to really see the leaf of the bush and not the bush is just a, it's a novel perspective. Mm -hmm. So he gave me film and then I pushed the film through the camera and processed stuff. And then it's been pretty steadily downhill since then. I took photography classes in high school and I was the yearbook photo editor and, uh, and I was pretty presumptuous. So I actually went to my local newspapers and... Um, you know, sold myself to them. And so I started working when I was in high school, shooting like weekend assignments for uh, the Livingston County Press and the Brighton Argus. Nice. Um, and, uh, and then when I went to college, I started working at the student newspaper. And then um, at the end of college, I wound up moving to London, England, where I studied underneath a photographer. Um, and then when, at this point, I was already working for the Grand Rapids Press and the Detroit Free Press and the Associated Press. So when I moved to London um, to study underneath a photographer, I also picked up work for Agence France Press, the Associated Press, writers, you know, basically anyone who would, you know, meet with a, um, a wide-eyed young American mm -hmm. um, and pay me to shoot pretty much anything. Um, and so when I was there, like I, you know, photographed in premiere of South Korea and, you know, press junkets at the Old Vic Theater with celebrities and... Oh, wow. Um, I photographed an oil spill in Spain and, uh, and so I, it, it just, it was, it was a fun, it was a really neat and fun thing to do. And I, and so I did freelance photojournalism, um, based out of Grand Rapids and then covering sort of this territory of the Midwest for most of the national news agencies. Um, and I still do some work for the New York times and USA Today and the um, wall street journal. Um, but the market started to kind of eat itself. You know, Craigslist came along, newspapers didn't react. They refused to adapt and they're, there's is an advertising business model. So that's really started the revenues declined, and which actually was good for me because as a freelancer, I stick around. They let the staffers go. They keep the cheap freelancers. But eventually it got to a point where even that wasn't working. And the writing was on the wall. The, there was anyone who was paying any attention could see this coming. So probably about four years before I really stopped shooting for newsprint, I started transitioning my work into commercial work, photography because coming from a storytelling background, mm -hmm. taking pictures um, in a live environment that you've never been to before with people that you've never met before in whatever way that you need to, to tell some sort of a story that someone who has no context can look at and understand. Uh, it's a very useful skill. Um, and it's, it's also uh, honestly a really wonderful and interesting way to approach people. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, most commercial photographers don't have that kind of background. Most commercial photographers come through a, a fine arts program somewhere. Um, and then they sort of, uh, assist an apprentice underneath a commercial photographer um, and so uh, they're not necessarily as uh, flexible with working on location, working in different environments, working in strenuous environments. Um, and so we found that that gave me a pretty interesting competitive advantage. So at that point, I started doing Adam Bird Photographer because it was just me. 
And then fast forward a few years in a few different studios and uh, a lot of clients. Um, my wife was working uh, basically like as office manager, operations project management at a marketing firm. And it was, uh, it was rewarding and um, she worked with really, really great people. But she wanted to have the kind of fun that we get to have in the studio. And she's actually quite a gifted photographer on her own right, just, just mm-hmm. doing what she does. So she left her job and she came into the studio and rebranded as Bird and Bird Studio because there's two birds. There's two birds now. And we have a son. And but there's one, three words now, yeah. If he's old enough, <laughs> if he's old enough, uh, eventually if he wants to get involved in photography and he wants to, um, if he wants to pursue that kind of trade, um, then we'll just become Bird, Bird, and Bird. I love it. Um, but we're, we're probably a good 15 years away from that. Yeah. yeah. Bird cubed. How about that? There you go. Take the futuristic. <laughs> bird three. Well, bird, and if, bird and if, three, I like and that And if he ends better. up getting into your SLR camera... <laughs> And you can use that. You can pass down that fatherly wisdom. Yeah, buy him a roll of film. Yeah. Well, no, and and the well, and what I'm going to teach him, and what I really want everyone to take away ultimately when it comes to photography is there's really two ways that you can do photography. You can take a picture, or you can make a picture. And these are they sound really similar, but mm-hmm. these are very very different things. Uh, one of the reasons why I continue to stay in business in spite of the phones and the cameras that people carry every day getting better and better and better. And the new iPhone 11, especially with the triple camera, it's an incredible tool. It really, the computational imaging, it is a really incredible tool. But it's based around people taking pictures. And the thing is, if it has to do with the image of your brand, if, it, if you work at a company, then the, the pictures out there that relate to your company, pictures in media, pictures on your website, when someone does a Google image search on your Facebook, on your social media, those pictures are literally the image of your company, mm-hmm. uh, super literally. And it's always fascinating to me how casual people will be with that. Yeah. And they'll work a lot with pictures that are taken. And sometimes I think that's really appropriate, especially for social media where you want to open up the curtain and let people in. Sure. Um, then uh, an image that's taken is something that has uh, a utility and authenticity to it that people, I think, respond to on that medium sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, let's say you're a consulting firm, you know, engineering or lawyers, it doesn't matter. The, the people in that firm are pretty literally the service and the product. I mean, that's the value. So do you want a photograph of that person that's taken, you know, in the break room or in the lobby or somewhere else, or do you want something that's made? Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true with product. I mean, if you have a, and the, the big companies know this, you know, so you have your uh, Ford Motor Company or, um, you know, pick a really big brand and they're going to have these really big budgets for photography. And they do that because it is so important that they manage their image. And the way to manage it is to be really strategic and careful in that content. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and the, the, the shoots that get put together for these kinds of things, you know, we start off with uh, treatment what it is that we're trying to, uh, well, actually, no, let me back up. We start off with meetings where we're trying to figure out, like, you know, who, who's the audience. You know, they, they usually have all that figured out, so they're sharing with us, this is who it's for, this is what we want it to be, this is what we want it to do. And then we work and put together, depending on how it goes, some sort of a storyboard or whatever. There's a mood board of other work that's already out there that they want to reference, you know, with, with color or tone or models or poses or locations. And then we take all that stuff and then we do the, Casting, what's the right face to put with this? What's the right kind of person to put with this? What's the message that needs to come out? And then we go and we, you know, scout locations. And then all this gets put together in a treatment. These people, this time, this location, these props, this wardrobe, this styling, this day. 
Um, and then we put all that together. And then when we're working with professionals and things work well, a lot of times we can create a certain type of spontaneity and impulsivity with the shoot so that it, it is authentic because even if someone is dressed up, styled, made up in, you know, a location or whatever, that there's no reason why those people can't also be authentic and sincere. If they're supposed to have fun, then, you know, we can actually have fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then we do all that. And then th these pictures are made and they become assets. It, an asset is something that has a yield over time. If you invest in an asset, it doesn't matter what the asset is, um, and you do your homework ahead of time, then that yield gets spread out over a long time and it's high value. Mm -hmm. Photography is no different. Same thing is true with podcasts and with video and with copy and, and stuff like that. It's because the tools are so democratized now, because we all have such even access to what are really pretty high quality tools, um, we forget that the attention and the, um, the talent um, and the, and the trade craft is not necessarily democratized. Mm -hmm. So the tool does a really great job of taking pictures, but the tool doesn't tell you where to put the person or what angle to put the person at or how to light the person or what needs to be in the pictures to really communicate the message that you want to communicate. The, the computer still can't do that stuff. And, um, I think we're quite a ways out before we really reach that point. Because if we do, then we're all out of jobs. <laughs> it's true. Um, and so that's what we do is we we uh, we build photographs. Nice. So let's talk a little bit about like the craft, right? Um, I've known you for a long time, and I will say your your storytelling capabilities are phenomenal. I think you have just a really keen um, innate ability to do that. So when we look at brand storytelling, visual storytelling. How important is photography to translating that brand message? Well, I mean, I don't want to say that it's all important, but um, it's critical. Mm -hmm. You know, the the quality of a brand is determined by the weakest image. When when something bad happens to a brand, and so I don't want to pick on Boeing, but I'm going to pick on Boeing. Um, the pictures that are out there of their products are going to convey the brand. Mm -hmm. There are these pictures that are running on Twitter, they're running on Instagram, they're running across all the major news outlets. Every time there's a new revelation of, you know, documents that have been, um, that have been let go, that, that, that people can read about this, that, and the other thing that, and it's not too terribly flattering. Um, people aren't going, people are finding whatever pictures they can of it. And Boeing has exercised a lot of control over that, but there's still a lot of pictures that aren't necessarily so favorable. Um, and so when, people see that story and then they see a picture that's not so favorable, then um, that image does a lot to determine how they interact with that story. Or actually, to bring this a lot closer to home, um, there's a higher education institution that I used to work for, and they have a football team. And the quarterback for the football team wound up getting uh, arrested. He was at a house party, and he was actually trying to help break up a fight, but he kind of got caught up in that when the police arrived. Mm. And the picture that the... Um, it, the school had released as a part of their press packet for the football team had him very tight-lipped and looking very tough because he's a tough football player. Mm -hmm. Well, so that's the picture that's running alongside a headline on the star quarterback, you know, at a mm -hmm. brawl at a house party. And he, he really did a lot to reinforce that story by having this super tough photograph. Um, and uh, so one of the results is that uh, that particular school made a rule that all athletes and all photographs have to smile. 
Because the reality is that if the other football team is looking at the pictures of their opposition on a website, whether you're looking tough or smiling isn't going to change how they play. But when something happens, something good or bad, then the disposition of the person in the photograph is going to do a lot to, to really affect how that photograph is perceived. Uh, especially, it's, and it's the, most, it, it's the most casual stuff that kind of trips you up. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would say that the best thing that any company can do, um, if they have any people that are in any way forward-facing, public-facing, is to make sure that they invest in, in a decent quality portrait of that person. You know, it doesn't have to be like a cover of Forbes magazine, just something that looks good. Because then whatever PR comes along, whatever marketing opportunities come along, they can capitalize it with a picture that they've already got that they can already send out. And if there's bad PR, then having a picture of people who are warm and approachable and friendly looking is going to do a lot to help control that story. Mm-hmm. So I, li- I loved your analogy of the make photos, not take photos. How can we apply those concepts day to day, considering that most of us carry iPhones and Android phones that have very capable cameras? What are some of the things that we can do, maybe tips and tricks, um, to yield really great, compelling photos? Start off with, uh, what, well, with really the message. What, what is it, before you even think about what it looks like, what are you asking, you know, what, does it, what do you need people to take away from it? You know, if you're a, if you're an injection molding company, then uh, all right. So it's plastics, great. Um, if you need to show people that you have extra large presses um, because they need to know that you have that capability, well, then clearly you need to take pictures of extra large presses. Sometimes it's you know pretty self-revealing, but it's always a worthwhile exercise because sometimes, like let's say you're a technology company and uh, you know you do um, server work of some sort. Well, you know, a picture of a of a rack server rack is it's it's boring i mean it's only interesting to a very small group of people and even (laughs) they would admit it's kind of boring (laughs) um and so so then the question is not you know if they're doing that what they're doing might be more about connectivity so then what kind of picture can you build that really demonstrates connectivity you know like maybe you can do really clever things with ethernet cable wiring and make shapes out of it or you know, maybe you can take a picture that has a bunch of people sitting at a table and then you can do a little bit of illustration where you can literally draw lines between them to show people the way that they're connecting. There's all there's all sorts of stuff. That, basically, there's limitless opportunities to really frame that. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing what you want people to take out of it is a great place to start. Because once you know that, then, okay, I know what I want people to take out of it. Then it's pretty easy to figure out what needs to be in the picture. During marketing week... Uh, one of the things I remember you specifically talking about, which really resonated with me, is if you are taking a taking photos with a smartphone, smart device, is a lot about how you're framing it and a lot about the lighting that can make a big difference. Can you uh, reiterate what you covered in that? Because I, I thought that was a very valuable lesson. So ironically, most people um, are uh, unaware of the history of the word photography. It's a, it's a combination of Latin words. So um, a photo is light like photon, Mm -hmm. and graphis means write. And so photography very literally means to write with light. The the technical quality of a photograph and the appearance of color, the appearance of light, the appearance of dark, all that stuff is directly determined by the quality and quantity of light. It's, It's inescapable. You can, even with the newest, latest, and greatest cameras that can pretty much see in the dark, you're making trade offs if you do that. You're gonna lose 
color fidelity. You know, it's going to be harder to get the colors the way you want. And when you get like people's skin tones, there's literally tens of thousands of shades of green and pink and mm -hmm. yellow and brown. It's in people's skin. And in order to see in the dark, the camera's going to get rid of all but about six of them. Mm. And so you'll get a picture that you can see, but, um, it, but it, it always comes with trade-offs. You know, there's no free lunch. Um, so whatever you're photographing, how do you figure out, like, how can you put a good light on it? So if you're a small uh, shop and you're a maker of some sort and you have to take pictures to sell something on Etsy or to put up on Instagram, then if you've got good windows, then, you know, move it close to the window. You know, how can you position it so that it, the light on the window is falling on it nicely? Or let's say there's too much window, right? There's direct sun coming in. And it's too hard. The shadows are harsh and it doesn't literally, it literally does not reflect well on your subject. Then, you know, maybe you should take some, you know, some tool or something sheer or any number of things and, you know, diffuse the light a little bit. Um, so much of not just photography, but also uh, videography and cinematography is really comes down to um, how are you engaging in manipulating light or engaging in manipulating your subject. So if you have no real ability to control lights, but you got a bank of windows, then if you're going to do a portrait of a person, then maybe you want to put that bank of windows behind you so that the light, you know, really shows their face well. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you need something that's more moody and dramatic. So you have the person sideways. So one side's light, one side's dark. What's the story that you're trying to tell? And then how do you use that lighting to really build up that story. So if it's something that needs to be introspective, like you're, you want to show how creative and hardworking and, um, and engaged people are, then maybe you want something that's a bit more dramatic. Yeah. But if you want to do something like, let's say you're, uh, um, you know, healthcare or elder care, you don't want moody and dramatic. You <laughs> want, you want warm and you want engaging and you want open. So then you need them to be facing the light. Right. Um, and, and, uh, the difference between the two is literally just rotating a person. Um, and we can all do that. We, we all respond well to light. Everyone knows when they go into a restaurant with bad light. You might not necessarily identify it, but it's never as nice. Like places that are well lit are nice places to be. Mm -hmm. We all know that. You, when someone buys a house and they've got great windows, you know, with like great northern exposure, so it's nothing but, you know, indirect sunlight all day long. Yeah, it's great, you know. Um, and so we all have an instinct for this where, you know, we don't, we all have training. It's just not formal. And so some of it is learning to kind of pay more attention to what you're responding to and to what, uh, what looks good and, and being willing to, to fail at it. The, the best way I know to build good pictures is to build bad ones first. Take a, take a bad picture, embrace the fail, take a bad picture and then look at it. What makes it bad? And then how do you change that? How do you take the bad and get rid of it, adapt it, whatever, and then take another picture? And since we're digital, this, this can be done very quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a time-consuming process. And then when you, when you take out those failures, when you take out the things that aren't as successful in the picture and you do that in succession, then in a fairly short amount of time, you wind up with something that's really quite lovely. But this is, this is a process. So you're not just pulling out a camera and taking a picture and boom, you're done. You're taking a picture changing, taking a picture, changing, taking a picture, changing, taking a picture, changing, um, until you reach a point where there's not necessarily anything more to change or you're out of time or you're out of money. <laughs> Thank you. Very insightful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I love how you explain, um, you know, how you kind of need to, you know, start with a message first. And I think it, this goes back to kind of that, uh, you know, brand storytelling, but 
Why is it so important for companies to work with photographers to create their own images um, rather than maybe just pulling something from a stock service? I have a story. Oh, okay. Yes. There, uh, this is not my story. I'm stealing this from somebody else. But there's, a, 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 there's an agency that does market research, and um, they worked with uh, an insurance, like a local insurance agent, you know, real standard stuff. Mm-hmm. And they made two websites for this guy. They made one website where the main picture on the main page, the very first page you get to, there's a portrait of a very handsome, well-dressed man looking attentive, sitting in an office, and it's stock, you know? Mm-hmm. This guy's good looking, and it's perfectly lit. It's a nice picture. Yeah. And then they also had another website that got the other half of the traffic, and that website had a picture of the actual guy who's the actual owner of the agency. He's in his early 60s. He's not in the best of shape. His suit doesn't really fit all that well. And it's taken in his office, which is not a showpiece. You know, it's a it's a regional insurance agent's office. And the conversions were almost 30% higher on that one mm-hmm. because his name is on the agency. Mm-hmm. So when someone goes to that website and they see the stock picture, you know, that's not the guy. Yeah, it's real life. You know, people can it's not perfect. We we know when we know when stock, the picture right? lies. We <laughs> yeah. know when the picture lies. Yeah, yeah, how is it? You could look at a stock image and you just know right off the bat, like, that's oh, that's stock. a stock image. Yeah, because it's because you know, insurance <laughs> agents generally don't look like you know New York models in you know offices that clearly could be a, a showroom for a furniture company. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, this this was a this was an insurance agent. I think it was in like rural Iowa. So like, this is clearly not. Mm-hmm. Um, but the picture of him that was him, it's clearly him. It's clearly his office, and and he's. Uh, it's not a. It's not. I wouldn't say it's a well built picture, but he um, he likes. You can see that he likes being there. He's mm-hmm. smiling and he doesn't look miserable. Mm-hmm. It's authentic. <laughs> and and so people are like wait a minute, that's the guy, and he is literally the guy they're going to talk to. Yeah. And so then people respond to that. Um, the stock comes with a bunch of dangers. Mm-hmm. Um, a- another example, um, there was a, a woman's magazine and, um, there was a really great stock photo that was, um, put on Getty and Motorola, the, the phone company, you know, they used this picture of a woman who's like on her phone and out walking around and having a great time. And it's, you know, it's perfect. Like it's perfect, perfect time of day, perfect street. Mm-hmm. All, all the things mm-hmm. are perfect. Like it is in that kind of picture. Um, and there was a feminine hygiene products company that used the exact same picture in the exact mm-hmm. same magazine. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's funny. Yikes. So you could actually like fold up like 15 pages and see the same picture on two sides. That's great. Um, people lost their jobs over that one. Wow. Um, it's because now there's the image creates brand association right, across right. those two different industries for those companies and in the same issue, no less. Yeah. When you're using a stock photograph, because it is a stock photograph, other people are using it too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not exclusive to you. And it's always a compromise on messaging because it's not your people. It's not your process. It's not your location. It's not your product. It's a facsimile. Mm-hmm. It's an approximation. It's, mm-hmm. a, uh, it's, it's a close. But it's an easy trap to fall into because, you know, you're a designer or you're, you're on a content team somewhere and we have to do this page on the website or this mailer or whatever. We have to do this thing and we have this tight deadline and we don't have a budget. So we'll spend, you know, if it's Getty, we'll spend, you know, like the, the two to $500 on the good stuff. 
And if it's more throwaway, then we'll throw like 10 credits at Shutterstock. And they're usually like, I think $1.50 a credit or something. So you'll spend like $10 on it. And so then you wind up with this asset that everyone else has. And a lot of times, especially if it's industry specific, like let's say you're in sheet metal work, they're all using the same 10 pictures yeah. because mm-hmm. there's only 10 pictures that don't entirely suck. Mm-hmm. And so, so now you, you're using the same stuff your competitors are using. Um, or you're using stuff that people in different industries are using, but that image becomes associated with their brand, and then people see it with mm-hmm. yours, and they're like, well, wait a second, that's with that brand. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and usually it's because there's, um, it, it's, a, it's a confluence of cost and speed. Sure. But if you're really, if you're strategic on building a shoot, you know what you want to do, and you know how you want to do it, you know who needs to be into it, um, then out of a single day, you can create a bit of a library of art, you know, mm-hmm. if it's not like hero shots, like perfect product or whatever, like, you know, let's say you're a construction company, um, an eight hour day of shooting people on site working, you know, uh, with a decent amount of production, um, the cost per image is going to be about on par with what you're paying for not so great stock. The difference is you just have to think about what you need up front. Right. Instead of reacting to the need over time, which ideally was what everyone should be doing anyways. Right. But then you wind up with an asset library that is yours. It's your people. It's your projects. It's your processes. It's, it's authentic to who your company is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you have that, you can start doing all kinds of things that you can't do with stock. And if, if you're putting together decks to pitch your product or your service, then having pictures in your deck that literally illustrate what you do is really helpful. Showing people is always a good idea. Telling them mm-hmm. is only partially successful. Um, you can use it for all kinds of... There's so many ways that you use pictures now. The demand for pictures has actually never been higher than it is right now. Sure, yeah. Um, but for a lot of companies that aren't large, the philosophy has been good enough. And and that's one of the things that can become a real key differentiator. Uh, if your philosophy is good enough for your photography, then chances are that probably pervades to the company, you know, in, mm-hmm. in other places as well. But when you can go through and have an intentional asset that goes with intentional marketing with specific goals and specific... Um, things that you wanted to accomplish, what's a goal, then um, uh, that generally kind of follows through to the other stuff in the company as well. Um, and, and the price is relatively competitive. It's just um, where do you put the work? Like do you spread it out so you're you know, buying one or two pictures a week? Or do you put all that work up front and then you have this library that you can then reference for you know, the rest of the year? Mm-hmm. Now that's my big question is the digital asset library. How do you go about creating that library, what I've walked into at many positions is you come in and there are just, there are photos everywhere. Nothing is saved. Nothing is categorized. So if you're, I guess if you're starting new, how would you approach that? And, or if you are an organization like me and you're trying to get all that stuff together, how can you get all your photos together? How can you tag them? How can you get them in a system where then anybody, because I work at an organization where we have many departments that may be utilizing photos for posters, for social media, to do event flyers. How do I get all those photos in? So if they need a lake sunset photo, it's easy for them to find, or they need somebody at one of our events, you know, a family, a real photo. How do we get to that point? Well, like, Pretty much everything. It involves first someone taking ownership of it. Mm-hmm. Someone within the organization needs to own the library. Um, larger organizations have um, digital asset management software, which will help um, t- 
tag and name and size and, and stuff like that. But that software tends to be really quite expensive. Um, if you're not a large company that does billions of dollars a year in revenue, then, and you can't afford a, uh, a dam, then there's some other software options that are more approachable. Uh, Adobe makes a product with their creative suite called Bridge, which is nice because then you can preview it in thumbnails. And from within Bridge, you can rename it. You can put tags on it so that you can search tags to find it. Um, we hate Bridge. Um, and we never use it. And I don't know anyone that really likes it. Um, it's, uh, it's, um, it's an adjacent program. It's not something that Adobe has invested significantly in because it's not a tentpole software product like Photoshop is. The software that we prefer is actually made by a much smaller company called Camera Bits, and it's called Photo Mechanic. And if you go to any massive, massive time-sensitive organization, so like a New York Times or a wire agency or, or Getty, like a, you know, a stock service or something, there's a pretty good chance that there's a number of desks that are going to be running Photo Mechanic because it can render thumbnails blindingly fast. And you can batch resize and save photos. You can do hierarchical editing where you can do like, this is my first round of picks, second round of picks, third round of picks. You can put tags in it that are searchable. You can alter the, um, uh, the EXIF and, uh, or no, you can alter the IPTC information, which is like the embedded data that goes mm. with the, the picture itself. And some of those fields actually strongly affect whether or not an image pops up in search when people are looking for it. Um, so Bridge does most of that stuff too, but Photo Mechanic does all of it better and faster. And it's a small team of people, but they're just so responsive on their customer service. Um, they, like, I think it's like a team of like five people or four people, but um, they've always gotten back to me within a day, you know. And Adobe has a number you can call, and then you can talk to somebody who doesn't actually know anything about the software, who's going through a script and um, doesn't actually tell you any of the things that you need to know. Um, but the, the phone mechanic is just an incredible program for sorting and you can change the arrangement of things. You can, it's a, it's a powerful program for managing photos, but it is not an editor where you can go in and change color or make it brighter or darker or, or crop it or anything like that. It's just a, it's just management software for, you know, you have this big bucket of pictures. So, you know, how do you, you know, make it so the file name relates to the thing and you can do that in batches, which is amazing. You know, we, we do it a lot for our clients. Um, we can deliver them pictures that have like the final name out of the camera, but that's not so helpful for us to rename 1300 pictures takes about 30 seconds oh. to have, cause the software, cause we tell it what we want the name to be. And then the software just applies that to everything, you know, but if you're, if you don't have these tools, like most people, then going through and renaming a folder of like even a hundred pictures, you know, you're going through and you know, hitting enter on the picture and then typing it in, hoping you don't screw it up and mm -hmm. then hitting enter again so that it's deselected and making sure you have the right file name and then hoping you don't mount. Like it's, you know, it's changing file names is a pain. Uh, yeah. Um, Two questions based off that. Isn't that, um, doesn't Adobe, is it Lightroom? Mm -hmm. Can't you do that with Lightroom and then with Lightroom and or Bridge or Photo Mechanic, will that do your alt tags too? Um, sort of, yes. Okay. Um, it, um, Lightroom will do a lot of the alt tagging um, that Photo Mechanic will do. Um, it's just a lot slower at it. Okay. Um, Lightroom is a really good program for um, doing batch post-production, like, you know, um, color, tone, um, you know, things like that for, for doing some sort of like a rough kind of global edit to the image. Gotcha. But um, the, the, 
it renders previews depending on what you set it to at different speeds. Like if you want full resolution preview, it takes longer. You know, super low resolution preview is shorter. With Photo Mechanic, you know, by the time it takes to ingest 200 raw images into Lightroom, um, Photo Mechanic uh, will open the same folder in a tenth of the time. It's it's fractional. It's the speed of it is incredible because it's not because the way that it renders thumbnails is different. Yeah, I'll check that out. We'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes because that sounds like something that might make my life a lot easier. <laughs> it's a it's a good way of uh, well, just being able to grab a thumbnail and drag it to another spot so you can put the five pictures next to each other. Right. Um, without having to screw with file names or putting numbers in front of like it's, you know, being able to just arrange stuff in a folder the way that you want it and then naming it or then alt tagging it. It's, you know, it's it's a really wonderful tool for that. And when it, it's not particularly expensive either. I would say that if you have someone who is in one way or another tagging or renaming 50 pictures a week or more, then the amount of time that you'll save in a month will be worth it. It'll, like it'll make its money back just in that time savings. Awesome. Uh, so let's uh, talk a little bit about, um, I know this is a passion topic as it should be for, for you and, and all um, artists who are, are creating things copyright, usage rights, all of those things. If a brand is looking to work with a photographer, even maybe like tips, like what should they be asking their photographer? What do they need to know about using the photos? All that. Federal law says that copyright always resides with the content creator. That's the default. So unless someone has a piece of paper that is signed by the content creator that gives them the right to use it uh, one way or another, then they don't have it. Um, they might they might think that they have it, but it doesn't mm. liter- it's not formally there. Um, and so uh, anytime that someone is hiring a photographer, they should always make a part of that negotiation. What kind of usage rights are coming with these photographs? Are some clients of mine they want buyout, they want to own the photograph entirely, which mm. means that I have to get their permission to put it in my portfolio because it's their property. It's not my property. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have other clients that, they just want the picture exclusively for a year. And then from their point of view, it's reached the end of its shelf life. They've used it. They're done with it. It's time to move on. If it's a well-built photograph, then it's probably going to have use elsewhere. So then I can still turn around and, and I can still make money off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they might want that one year of exclusivity. It changes the cost of the photograph. It changes the cost of the shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, the licensing generally is a, a combination of scope and duration. You know, how far is it getting used and for how long? Mm-hmm. So more time costs more and more use costs more. So if you're going to use it on the website, but you're also going to use it on the cover of like, say, a national magazine, then that's a usage that will cost more than if you're going to use it on the cover of a, of a regional magazine or on the cover of like, let's say, uh, an internal publication for a company. You know, these are all different costs. In a smaller market like Grand Rapids, this isn't really as much a part of the dialogue and that's partly because a lot of the customers, a lot of the clients aren't really very well educated on it. Uh, in larger markets, it's a much bigger thing because people are more opportunistic. So there are business models where there are companies that buy up photo studios that are either struggling or where someone's just retiring and closing shop. They'll buy the studio and then they own the back catalog. Mm-hmm. And then they can do shakedowns or they can send a, a letter to a former client and say, hey, you're using this photo, but it's out of license. So pay us this much money or we take you to court. It's a lot like with music. When people download mm-hmm. music illegally, it's, 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 it's very similar stuff. Um, even if you pay a musician to write music for you, unless the musician signs a piece of paper saying that you can use it, you can't. Right. 
you know, um, at, or like, I mean, when you go to a restaurant, you, you buy the food, but you don't necessarily buy the recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can go and you can eat it, but you know, you can't necessarily take it and make it at home. I don't know if I like that as an analogy. <laughs> I but thought it was, it. I yeah, thought that's it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, and so, and this is true with copy. This is true with video. This is true with photography. This is true pretty much with all content is that when it's made, it resides with the creator. Mm-hmm. Video is different because most video contracts are what are called work for hire. So whatever is created basically belongs to the client. That's the, the way that that, in, the direction that that industry has gone in. But um, video also doesn't necessarily... Well, historically, hasn't had uh, the same kind of shelf life and utility that photography does. Uh, and people keep on telling me that video is going to take over and all the still photography is going to go away, but it, that just keeps on not happening. Um, but video represents a commitment. Like if you're scrolling through something, you have to stop and actually mm-hmm. pay attention to it, let it unfold in front of you. Uh, photography doesn't present a commitment. You can engage with it, receive an impression from it, and move on. Um, at a pace that you as an audience determines rather than at a pace that is determined by the creator of the video. Yeah, that's nice. We had a great conversation too, just on the, the legal aspect of that Jennifer Poplava in episode 11. Yes. So if anybody really wants to know more on that, she talks a lot about, um, you know, the ins and the outs and the things to look out for. So, mm-hmm. so check that out. Getting contracts up front and all of that. So yeah. Right. Absolutely. We always do a formal estimate that mm-hmm. outlines not just, what the shoot is and how we're going to do it, but also says this is very specifically what licensing comes with it. Um, if they want more, then this is what it's going to cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I believe I, if I'm a consumer, then how do I want it presented? So everything is also broken down sort of a la carte. Like this is how much this process costs. This is what those hours cost. This is what that equipment costs. Like, you know, all these things. Because, you know, if you're not within someone's budget, when you do it that way, then you can be like, okay, well, if I take out this assistant or we take out that stylist, mm-hmm. then we can manage costs these ways. Sure. Um, and, but you can't have those negotiations without... Without knowing it all. Without knowing it all yeah. and having the, you know, having it all put together. For sure. Let's talk about SEO and searchability. How can original photography lead to significant increase in conversions? And I think you also said that SEO knows when it's a stock photo. Is that possible? Yeah. The the search engines are smart. There's something called reverse image search. So you can take a picture, you can upload it to Google, and then Google will give you every other usage of that internet of that picture on the internet. Oh really? So mm. gonna have to try that out. Yeah. <laughs> um it's uh the original technology was created by a company that had a site called TinEye, but I think Google bought it or absorbed it or copied it. I'm not sure. But the reverse image search is 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 a pretty powerful tool. How do you do that? Just Google reverse image search. Oh, okay. And then, <laughs> and Josh then is over here on his laptop, uh, you know, searching images as we, as we chat. Image, image search. search. And then it'll ask you to upload a photo, and so you'll upload a photo. Or it'll ask you for the URL of a photo, and then uh, and then it looks it up for you. And, oh, awesome. Um, and the technology behind how it does that is an entire podcast in of itself. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's There's there's a combination of magic, magic and wizardry and good luck and terribleness and happiness all at the same time. Um, but Google knows when uh, Google knows when you're changing your website. It knows when you're changing your copy. It knows when you're changing your pictures. And Google has been really straightforward as they usually are in what they really want to see from people. And they've been very explicit. We want to see you refreshing your content on the regular. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't just mean changing the copy. That also means changing your pictures. Every time you change a picture on your website, Google's like, ah, this is new. And then the other thing is original photography pretty much always has higher engagement. Um, 
when you go to pretty much anyone's website and it's actual stuff of theirs, then you're going to look at it more than when it's pictures that you've already seen that you know are stock or pictures that are just, you know, inauthentic. I mean, you, you can tell when it's stock. Everyone everyone has a pretty mm-hmm. good Like everyone sitting detector. around at the board t- boardroom table yeah. beyond that stock photo. Yeah. And, and everyone <laughs> is, you know, impeccable, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. Um, it's uh, So the people know when it's stock and the search engine knows when it's stock. Um, and the search engine prioritizes engagement. Uh, Google, if people spend time on a page and they really look at it, Google knows that. And it will then feed that page to more people. And so anything that you can do that can kind of hold people to it. Uh, so original photography is definitely a p- component of that. But it also, there's a burden that's on copy. What do you write and put on that page that people actually pay attention to? If you, It doesn't really, like there's so many case studies that, that you can come up with on this. Um, when you look at, Companies that have everything to lose, they usually have a really high budget. You you won't you won't go to Coca Cola's website and find stock photography. You won't go to Ford's website. You know you, it's because they have too much to lose by using the same picture as everybody else. Um, and so and the and the search engine can tell. So when you're swapping those things out, then it says ah oh, you have fresh content. And then if you have content that is doing a better job of holding people, then the search engine can see that too. And both of these things affect your ranking significantly. I mean, Google's been really upfront about that. Um, but then, you know, also you're giving people a reason to revisit the website. So when you, like, when, let's say you redo all the photographs, if you've got uh, an e-blast that goes out or something, you can be like, hey, we changed a bunch of stuff on the website. Check it out. And it's real because you did change a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the original content doesn't just work in one area. It reverberates. It's like, you know, when you throw pebbles in a pond and there's, there's ripples that come out when you put up original content, then there's a ripple effect that comes out of that, you know, cause then you can start to talk about it on social media. You can talk about it on e-blasts. It's really, really nice when you're telling someone about something you're doing at work and then you can just pull up the website and show them. Yeah. That's so much better than going through Dropbox or Google drive or pick your cloud thing and trying to find the right folder that has the right picture and then scrolling through the picture to try and find it. It's really nice when you can just pull up the website and go to the page and you're like, here it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so even from an in-person sales standpoint or from just – it improves networking. Like we don't think about that, but, you know, when you're at a networking event, like one of the many fabulous ones that AMA does, when you're trying to tell people about this new, you know, caster or this new dental toothpick or this new chair that your company is making, you know, showing it to people is oh, – it's so helpful. And when it's on the website, then you can just pull up on your phone, type in the website, you know, and ideally, if it's well-designed, you're talking about one or two taps and you're there. Mm-hmm. And you can do that in front of somebody and they can see that you're on your website. So if you're willing to go to your website in front of them, then they're probably going to be more interested in going to your website too, yeah. you know. Um, and I can – and there's so many more examples of this, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, let's say you're doing a guest podcast appearance, right, and then – the podcast needs to have a picture of some sort relative to your product or service or Megan personage. Megan loves mm-hmm. podcast pictures, her favorite thing. <laughs> then, you know, having a picture that's good and uh, that does a good job of, you know, sharing what telling needs to be story. shared, telling the story, mm-hmm. you know, when when you put the effort in, the rewards come from a whole bunch of different places. Yeah. You know, um, it's just, unless you're at a really large company, it's easy to get caught up in the tyranny of the day-to-day and what is urgent and to lose track of what's important. So after this, Adam's going to give us tips on how to take better podcast photos. <laughs> <laughs> Are I know you I knocking need. my podcast photos that I've been taking? No, that's I, know, I need that. I need that for it. sure. <laughs> um, all right, Adam, 
Last question before we kind of go into the the personal questions here. Um, our whole theme for AMA this year has kind of been that what's next, what's on the horizon. So what's coming with visual marketing? Like what, what trends are happening? What are you seeing? Uh, what are we going to be seeing here in the future? Uh, more pictures. More pictures. Um, more uh, more user-generated pictures, which is going to make messaging from a brand standpoint more difficult because increasingly your brand is going to be defined by the pictures that other people take of your products, of your services. Um, and so one way or another, having strategies to mitigate it and manage it, embrace it, There's uh, that's, that's only going to increase. Um, we're going to start seeing more pictures that um, have been changed. Uh, right now in, in China, it's pretty normal practice if you take a picture of a friend to spend like literally a half hour to 45 minutes on your phone using the apps to retouch it, to, mm -hmm. to do the various filters and Enhancements, stuff. Enhancements, yeah. Um, and uh, and we'll, we, we see that with um, Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook the where Instagram, they're adding like, the... They say like, this is what Instagram and then the original. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, more of that is coming. Um, and so we're going to see, we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more tools to do it. And, and it's digital doesn't give us tools to do things different. It just gives us tools to do it faster. And so the speed of these tools is going to really increase. It's going to get to where those filters are going to be applied as the picture is being taken. Um, there's also going to be, um, a rejection of this. There's going to be a, a, a kickback, if you will. Um, there's a number of people that are already unhappy with the variations of body dysmorphia mm -hmm. and um, the way that images reinforce stereotypes around gender and race. And there's going to be more, I think there's going to be more demand for authentic imagery mm -hmm. um, because that's when it's been, when it's been pushed through those different filters and stuff, then the picture is really only interesting to someone who already knows you and likes you and wants to see pictures of you. Um, but if you're the CEO of a large international furniture company, then that kind of picture is going to do a whole lot of disservice to the brand. So I think the the need for sincere and authentic imagery is going to rise proportionally. Interesting. Hmm. I mean, we see the same. We've seen the same thing yeah. with music. You know, yeah. like um, so many bands that we can pick from that are doing a relatively straightforward analog process. I mean, like folk music is back in a big way because uh, it's it's authentic and it's sincere and it's in the moment. And it's not necessarily a rejection of the incredibly produced pop music that's out there. But as more and more music is getting more carefully produced, we're also seeing more and more music um, that um, has a more authentic feel. Mm -hmm. And and I'm hearing, like, I'm, I'm, I'm at weddings and people are playing Mumford and Sons as, like, you know, the walking down the aisle, you know. Um, and they're doing that because it feels sincere and authentic, you know, because it's, it's, it, it feels real. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think we're going to see more of that um, uh, visually. We're already seeing it in some ways with um, cinema. There's a number of movies that have come out recently that have um, pretty famously done fairly minimal special effects. They've been really practical with what they do. Um, and, and it shows. You mm -hmm. know, people, people have a really good bullshit detector. Um, and the younger you are and the more you grow up within a saturated media environment, the better your bullshit detector generally is. And so, uh, and we're seeing, I'm seeing that especially with a lot of the big brands with their big campaign work, you know, where they're not taking pictures that are, it's where the focus is absolutely flawless and where everything is positioned exactly perfectly. They're, they're more chasing, like to reference Coca-Cola again, a lot of the stuff that they're doing, they're chasing a feeling. Mm. And so you see these pictures of people who are clearly having a good time, who are clearly in a good place in, in their head and in their environment and the people around them. 
And so it might not necessarily be the, the most technically perfect picture, but that's not really what they're aiming for. They're aiming to kind of, they're aiming to create this feel that comes from the picture. And they want people to know that when you drink a Coke, this is what you're going to feel. It's, it's very specific. It's, and it's a, it's a shift. And we're, I think we're going to see more of that shifting um, where we're going to be chasing more authenticity and sincerity. That makes sense. Yeah, those, those polar bears are not warm and cuddly and fuzzy like they make them out to be. They will literally rip your head off. And eat you. Yes. <laughs> it's all about the authenticity, Megan. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> all right, Adam. Well, thank you for all the wonderful insights. Before we let you go, we do have a couple of personal questions for you with a segment we're calling now, Ending With Why. It's kind of a take on uh, Simon Sinek's Starting With Why of um, just wanting to know not what you do or how you do it, but why is it you do what you do. So my first question to you would be, what is your why? I get to meet the most interesting people. You have no idea. If I'm getting paid to photograph you, then you're interesting. One way or another. Because if you're not interesting, then chances are pretty good that somebody is not willing to spend money on images of you. It's mm-hmm. a pretty straightforward thing. Yeah. Uh, I meet, you know, on, on some days I'll photograph billionaires and on other days I'll photograph politicians and on other days I'll photograph people who are in between houses uh, or I'll photograph students or I'll photograph professional athletes or sometimes I'll photograph a, a celebrity. It, it's all the people. The, because I work with both commercial and editorial, I do work for magazines, the, my camera winds up on everybody. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. um, I spent time up in um, Grayling photographing sheet metal workers doing welding, and that was pretty cool. And photographing them, especially if you're building a photograph, you, you can't help but interact. Mm-hmm. You, you, you have right. to interact with them. You have to uh, work alongside them, especially when you're photographing people. It, you can't divorce the process from the collaborative nature of it. Mm-hmm. And... And people let you in. They, they let you into their workplace. They let you into their home. They let you into their mm-hmm. hobbies. You know, they let you into your, their passions. Um, people will open up their lives to a camera in many ways that they would not open up in other ways. Um, so I get to, someone is, does, you know, makes wooden decoys, like little wooden ducks. Mm-hmm. You know, and the guy's a master at it, and he's been doing it for 50 years. I get to go into his shop and see how it's done, and I get to take pictures of it. If I just knocked on his door and said, hey, my name's Adam. And I would really like to see your wood shop. Um, I don't know if I would get so far. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, photographing a, a, a business icon. For 20 minutes or 10 minutes or a half hour, however much time I have, I have that person's attention. It's mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I can use it in collaboration with them to try and make a picture that is authentic and sincere and engaging and whatever it is that we need that portrait to say. But also in that process, I can, I can talk to them and, you know, and it's, it's amazing how different everyone is and how much the same everyone is. Um, you know, everyone, almost everyone's got some variation of family, either, either born or chosen. Everyone has passions, whether they're frustrated passions or engaged passions. Uh, And everyone, everyone likes to share, Mm -hmm. you know, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and everything. They know this and um, everyone likes to share. And when you can give people a vehicle to do that when you can give them an opportunity to share in a way that they cannot do on their own, uh, then, then magical stuff happens. And I learn, I learn all kinds of things about everything. And, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of other work that I could do that would be a lot more uh, financially successful and stable. 
but none of it opens the doors. Yeah. You know, I, when I fly, because I've spent time doing pictures at an airport, I, I know what, I know how the tarmac works when, you know, you're around the airport at the, at the gate. I know how the luggage stuff works because I've photographed the guys, you know, who are under the building, who are, you know, moving around or throwing it or managing the automated conveyor systems to do it because I've done work for a company that makes automated conveyor systems. And, and I get to meet them and I get to learn a little bit about them and see how they work. And, and how we work is how we live. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, um, I, I work and then I go home and I don't work, but it's all one life. And that time that I spend at work is time in my life. And, um, and, but sometimes I'm not doing that at all. Sometimes I'm just taking pictures of a family because they just want the best family portrait that they can possibly build. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, in some ways, that's the most rewarding work. Because the pictures that I take for a large multinational client, they're going to have a shelf life of however many years. And then they're exhausted. They've been used. They're done. People are used to it. It's time for new novelty. But if I can do something like where I do a family portrait of three or four generations of family, and I can do it right. I mean, you know, really make it clean and polished and where all the people have a chance for their personality to come through in it. That's a picture that someone's going to cherish 80 years from now. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and the, the photographs are the record of where we've been and what we do, all the pictures that we take and all the pictures that we're in. In a lot of ways, it's uh, one of our primary legacies. And, uh, and so that's why I do it, because for an awful lot of these people, I'm the only person to really come along and pay close attention to them and to make something of them, to interpret that into something that you can, you can have and hold and touch and share. Mm-hmm. And the, it's just such a privilege. It, I don't, uh, it's so awe-inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I really don't know much of other jobs that afford that. And so it just keeps me coming back over and over again. Yeah. Well, that was awe inspiring the way that you just explained all that. Just sitting here listening to that. I'm like, oh, yeah, I love it. That's very cool. Absolutely love it. All right. Let's, um, let's transition a little bit and talk a, a little bit. I know you're an avid reader too, like me. Yeah. What's it's your favorite, habit. huh? It's a bad habit. It's a great habit. What are you talking about? I'm so pop culturally illiterate. <laughs> it's, it's sad. It's so sad. Well, let's talk about what is your, what is your favorite book? And this could be, uh, you know, personal, professional. What's your favorite one? That's an open-ended question. <laughs> uh, what's my favorite personal book or my favorite professional book? Which, or both. Both. Um, Give us both. Um. My favorite professional book is by a guy named Arthur Kessler, and it's called The Act of Creation. And it's basically, as near as I can tell, the definitive work on the act of creativity. If you are in any way engaging with anything creative ever in your life, then this is a book that you really need to read. It's, and it's his magnum opus. He wrote this at the end of his career after he'd written a whole lot of other stuff. And this is the summation of a life's work by an incredibly intelligent, wise, well-informed human on the nature of creativity itself. Um, and, and so because it's such a broad subject, he breaks it down into um, uh, humor, science, and art, because these are really the three places that creativity can be expressed um, and, and, and plays a a really useful role. So from a work standpoint, um, it's, it's not a hard, like terrible read. It's a little bit academic sometimes, um, mostly because it's the defining work. When you watch videos by pretty much anybody on the internet talking about creative, if they're citing sources, this is pretty much almost always one of those sources. Mm -hmm. And pretty much anyone who's lectured on creativity in the last 
30 years is just repackaging what he said. Um, so from a professional standpoint, that's, you know, I would say that's probably the most important to me. Okay. Um, from a personal standpoint, um, James Clavell, uh, he has a, wrote a book called Shogun. Hmm. And it looks really long. The paperback's like 1,600 pages. Oof. But it's a, it's, a, it's a page burner, not a page turner. Like when you're reading it, you can't mm-hmm. wait to get to the next page. It's um, a lot of pages. Holy cow. And, well, it's paperback, so they're small. Okay, okay. You know, um, the hardbound is like, you know, half. I got like attention deficit. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I, now I have, eight, I have ADHD. Oh, okay. And I will so do you... this book in a sitting. Really? Like I'll start at like nine in the morning and read till midnight. Okay. And, and um, uh, I've read this book for the first time, I think, when I was 12. And I revisit it regularly because as I age and grow, I find new things in the book because it's that good. Oh, awesome. Um, and... Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of lessons in the book because the book is really in a lot of ways about how two vastly different cultures come together and how those differences define them, but how those differences also force them together. And, uh, cause it, the book takes place when, the, um, some of the first Europeans come to Japan. Mm. Um, and, uh, and it's historical fiction. So a lot of what's in it is, um, uh, sort of a retelling of things that actually happened. It's also not coincidentally a book that's very commonly found on the bookshelves of uh, CEOs and business leaders um, all over mm. the country. Um, I read this actually popped up, I think, in a story in Forbes magazine on the personal libraries of CEOs, um, because in some ways the book is an interesting analysis of different styles of leadership um, and how they fail and how they succeed and what they mean. Um, it's one of those crazy books that the rabbit hole goes as deep as you want to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and so I still, I actually own multiple copies of it cause I'm always got one loaned out to somebody oh, cool. yeah, and nice. I broke down and bought the hard copies because <laughs> I read it often enough that the paperback is trashed. Based off of what you've learned throughout your career, what is one piece of advice that you would offer to others? Who am I offering it to? Anybody? No, uh, you gotta be more specific than that. Me. About and what? Megan. Just anything. I, I mean, what, what have you learned throughout your career of starting off in photojournalism, living over in London and Europe? I mean, you've got to learn some. I mean, what, what's your biggest takeaway from your, your life experience, your, your education? Your... What's your life advice? Yeah. You have an intern. What would, what would one thing at the end of their internship, what would you say to them? Anytime that something goes wrong, which hopefully happens regularly. Because if things are going right all the time, you're not trying hard enough. Every time something goes wrong, you are afforded the rare opportunity to exercise virtue. And there's seven of them. You've got, you've got strength. You've got courage. You've got you know, patience. You've got discipline. You've got charity. I'm not going to name them all. Five is enough. Um, <laughs> and um, we don't exer- exercise virtue when things are great. We don't need to. Um, we only exercise virtue when things aren't great. But virtues are like muscles. They only get better when you use them. If you want to be more patient, the only way to do that is to be patient. And then when you find yourself being impatient, going, ah, I'm being impatient, and then go back to being patient. And that only happens when things go wrong. So when something doesn't go as you intend, when something goes wrong, when everything goes sideways, the first question that I ask myself is, what opportunity do I have to exercise which virtue? Uh, what, what can I do in my own head that I can get better at because I have this opportunity because things went wrong. Uh, and sometimes it's uh, a, a good opportunity to be patient. 
Sometimes it's a good opportunity to be disciplined. Uh, sometimes, oftentimes I find that it's a good opportunity to be charitable, which is an interesting one because charity is not philanthropy. Charity is not giving people stuff. Charity is an attitude that you have towards the people around you. Um, all of these virtues there, I mean, there's a reason why they've kind of stuck through culture and literature for like the last 2000 years. So anytime something goes wrong, there is an opportunity and it's easy to get so focused on what is wrong to, that you lose track of the opportunity. But when you take advantage of that opportunity, you will grow, you will change. Uh, you will find yourself facing the thing that goes wrong again one way or another, like an unhappy client or you know shoot that goes poorly or a copy that didn't come out like you wanted or doesn't matter. When you face that again, if you took that opportunity last time, then you will approach it with more resilience. You will approach it with more capability. And, and, and people around you will notice that. Uh, respect and dignity only works when you give it away. You can't get respect from people unless you give it to them. And dignity is the same way. And the vehicle for that is virtues. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's those virtues. You know, if you want to dignify people around you, then be patient with them yeah. or be temperate with them or be disciplined with them. But whatever you're called on to do. Um, and, and if you can do that, then an awful lot of things that are pretty shitty wind up actually not being quite so bad. I'm not saying that it makes everything okay because it certainly doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, but it does provide you something useful that comes out of it. Great advice. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks, Adam, so much for the insights, the great conversation. We thoroughly enjoyed it. And want to, again, thank you for your continued support to our AMA West Michigan chapter. Yes. Um, quickly, if marketers have questions, want to learn more, how can they reach you? Um, they can email me. They can do really, really antiquated stuff like call me on the phone. I'm always happy <laughs> when I get a phone call that's not a warranty for my car. Can they fax you something? No. Good. No, I've left not that. that. I've left, not, no, no. Um, but we, we, we always like to help. Um, I tell anybody who will listen that um, meetings and ideas are always free. Um, we, we love to, I love to meet people. And, and actually, Bird and Bird Studio, there's, there's, there's um, four of us full time in the studio. So we have a, a number of different talents when it comes to making photographs and meeting budgets and, you know, doing deadlines and things like that. Um, we're a company of people. We're not just an individual. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of a lot of resilience and capability that comes from that um, as opposed to just being like, you know, the guy. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And Thank one you. reminder, bird, birdstudio.com. Bird, bird, two birds. Bird, bird. Put a bird on yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Got to thank our sponsors, of course. Again, uh, River City Studios, our brand new podcast sponsor where we were recording this crystal clear sound and we're going to have this awesomely produced podcast. They can help you out too. Check them out. RiverCityStudios.com. Our annual sponsors that support programming year round, gold sponsors, MIBiz and Viscom Media, Silver Sponsors, Pageworks, Bird and Bird Studio and Red 66 Marketing and our bronze sponsors, OFA and Grand Valley State University Conference and Event Planning. Yes. And just a reminder, our next podcast will be our live panel discussion. Mm -hmm. This is going to be about the most popular multimedia channels, including videos, podcasts, photography, talked about today, blogs and webinars, um, and discover the best outlets to gain maximum engagement for your campaign. So we'll talk about the pros and cons, tools, resources, tips and tricks, all of it for each medium. So you definitely want to make sure to check that out. Yep. All of our podcasts are online at amawestmichigan.org. As we mentioned, uh, more about the data, privacy and legal 
article that we talked about. If you want to delve more into that, we have so much. We've talked to so many great people. It's all at our website, Marketers in Motion Podcast. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and soon to be more. We're going to get mm-hmm. on uh, Spotify and TuneIn and Google and there's like a bunch of them out there. So we're going to get on all those as well. You can send us an email if you want a direct line to us, podcast at amawestmichigan.org. No matter what you do, please get engaged. Ask us questions. We want to hear from you. We want to network. That's what this is all about. You can connect with your nearest AMA chapter by visiting AMA National at ama.org. And Megan, until next time, uh, we'll see you at the next spot. Until next time. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe and share our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Don't forget important links, content, and resources will be included in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. What will you do with the information you learned today? Be inspired. Be creative, be bold, set your marketing in motion.